Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 367, New England. Okay, so here we are again at the final instalment of my quartet of episodes on the English in the Americas. And this time it's New England's turn on the catwalk, hopefully with a bit on the most glorious Canada and a bit of Dutch stuff to boot. I might start, if you will forgive me, with an indigenous man called Tisquantum often known to history, I believe, as Squanto. In this, I confess to be following the trajectory of Charles Mann's book, 1491, just so that you've got a reference. It is a useful place to start, because we can maybe begin with the country into which the brave and hopeful English colonists were to enter. Tisquantum belonged to the Patoxet band of the Wampanoag people on the eastern seaboard. It's just north of Martha's Vineyard, don't you know, darling, across the bay from Cape Cod. It's where the rising sun hits the North American continent first for a time, and so the area was also known as Dawnland, and Tisquantum's fellows as the people of the first light, which is a lovely name to have. You might think of a suitable name for your own neighbourhood on the same basis. North Norfolk coast dwellers might be people of the wind-stripped flesh, just for example. New England and the North East was well populated at this time, with maybe as many 100,000 people. But the world Tisquantum was born into was politically not similar to Virginia or the lands to the north and west, because there was no confederacy formed there. And in fact, it is possible that early contacts with Europeans had actually accentuated the rivalries between indigenous peoples. Rivalry to control the trade with the mainly Dutch and French traders, especially in metal goods. They were exchange for furs. The Algonquin-speaking peoples along the coast, Massachusetts in the north of New England, the Wampanoag and the Pequot in the south, seemed to have become the middlemen in trade between the Europeans and rivals such as Narragansett and Mohegans further west. The English also had plenty of trading contact with the indigenous peoples of the area. Over 200 ships regularly operated there. So, Trading was quite common by 1600, and the indigenous peoples had developed a strategy to deal with their relationship. They were keen to trade, but they were not keen to have the traders stay beyond their welcome. So in 1603, just for example, one Martin Pring set up camp near Patoxet to harvest sassafras, a plant that is apparently both edible and smelly in a good way. They stayed, played guitar with the locals who played drums and flutes. But... They outstayed their welcome. So, the Patoxet decided they should be persuaded to leave. They surrounded the camp with 140 armed warriors and burned the woodlands in which the Sassafras lived. Pring and his fellows got the message, and they thought, hmm, should we go, do you think? It was the right decision, and like the tiger who came to tea, they went. That, incidentally, apropos of nothing, is my very favourite children's book. 
Anyway, a certain Captain John Smith, yes, that Captain John Smith, would also get the same treatment. However, other English visitors were not so polite and good at taking the hint. Thomas Hunt, for example, actually kidnapped 20 indigenous people and sold them into slavery in Spain. And one of those people was Tisquantum. Maybe because of this kind of event, relationships could turn nasty. So when a French ship was wrecked on the shore where lived the Norset, most of the French were killed and the Norset sent the remaining five to tribes who had also suffered at the hands of the Europeans. Tisquantum, meanwhile, spent time as a slave in Spain, escaped to England, and from there managed to get passage to Newfoundland. And from there, he began to work his way home to the village of the Batoxet. I think we ought to have the story of the Mayflower, should we not? It is high time. And to be fair, it's such a famous story that surely I cannot cover it in much detail, but no history of colonial America will be complete without a mensch. The Plymouth Company was planning to establish a colony in New England, and they had some form at doing so. They tried in 1607 at Sagadaho, but it had crashed and burned by the following year. So then they were approached by a group of English Calvinists who'd emigrated to Holland because they could not be doing with the Church of England anymore, since they felt the church to be approaching papistry in its approach, even before Lord and Charles I had really got their teeth into it. It is important to note that this group was very unusual when compared to later settlers. The vast majority of colonists to New England were not separatists. Yep, they weren't happy with the way the Church of England was turning out, especially under Lord, but they hoped to reform that church from within still, not to leave it. Many would come to New England still believing strongly in that church, but establishing their own religious communities free of interference from bishops and the church hierarchy. Not even Holland was to their liking, and Leiden is a lovely place, let me tell you, but they found it far too cosmopolitan, and given the extremity of their views, they found it difficult to land any other than the most menial jobs at the hands of their suspicious hosts. So, there was but one answer, to find pastors new and green, in which to build their perfect community, their city on a hill. Let us call this group of 40 souls the Pilgrims. They agreed to stump up a deal of cash to help the venture, and they were in. On the 6th of September then, 102 people set sail from England, aiming for the mouth of the Hudson River. 62 of the ship's company were not of the Pilgrims, who consequently referred to them as the Strangers. On the way, they found it difficult to get on, and so they drew up a treaty called the Mayflower Compact. A bit like the Magna Carta, big claims have been made for said contract, first written constitution and all. I am not qualified to judge. They made landfall near Cape Cod, which you might notice is some way from the Hudson River, but it was November now, not traditionally a good time to start exploring the northern wastes or plant crops unless you happen to want to live on shallots, which I was told to plant on the shortest day and harvest on the longest, but that shallot of trouble. So they had a look around. The land was very empty, they noticed, and they came across a deserted village and discovered, wonder of wonders, stored corn. Absolute manna from heaven. After a bit more exploring, they decided to make do, and they planted their colony at this site on another deserted village, and they called it Plymouth, on the 16th of December 1620, and had their first huts built by January. 
It is not a great time to start building a colony, really not, just in case you're thinking of doing that same thing sometime, and they'd also contracted diseases on the good ship Mayflower. 47 of the 102 would therefore be dead by March. Travelling to the New World was a seriously dangerous business. That first winter must have been terrifying, standing on the edge of extinction. And then one day in March, some indigenous peoples arrived, and after a few days, so did a man called Tisquantum. Tisquantum had indeed in the interval made his way to his home village of Patoxet. It was a terrible journey for him. Rather than the vibrant, well-peopled coast of his youth, he found an extended charnel house. Village after village lay empty. Tumbled down houses, untended fields, bleached bones and skeletons lying in between the ruined houses. The entire New England coast and hinterland had been devastated by a European disease, hepatitis A possibly, another hideous virgin soil epidemic. The horror must have been unimaginable. An English trader reported that the indigenous peoples died in heaps as they lay in their houses. And as people fled, taking the disease with them no doubt, the dying remained left for crows, kites and vermin to prey upon. Between 1616 and 1618, it's thought that the epidemic scoured the previously prosperous land and between 75% and 90% of the population is thought to have died. The land was made empty. So when Tisquantum returned to his home after all the challenges and dangers of his travels, his years of slavery and hardship, he found that the village he had dreamed about, the friends to whom he had expected to tell his story, were all dead and gone. Nothing of Patoxet was left. It must have been unimaginably horrible. Whether that Plymouth colony could have survived alone that first year must be moot, and the balance may well have lain with the indigenous peoples. Would they do what they'd done before and try to remove the unwanted guests? In this case, Tisquantum instead reappeared in Plymouth and from then on helped the English to survive, and relationships with the Wampanoag generally remained friendly. By the autumn, the colony was safe, and the colonists sat down to a hearty supper to celebrate their deliverance, and 90 of the locals appeared too. After a bit of mutual posturing, both of them sat down and celebrated together, and thus was born Thanksgiving, and many years later was born one of the greatest artistic cinematic achievements, a film surely to be sent out to waiting aliens as evidence of the heights of which human genius is capable. I speak, as of course you surely know, of planes, trains and automobiles. So what had happened here? On his return, Tisquantum had made contact with the local peoples and the Sartrim, or chief, Massasoit. It was Massasoit and the Wampanoag that decided what their response would be. To the colonists, it seemed clear, they believed the Wampanoag wanted guns and metal tools. And that may be the case. Or it may have been human sympathy for the struggling and dying colonists. Who knows? But a more compelling possibility lies, like with the Powhatan in Virginia, with local politics. Massasoit had seen his people decimated. To the west, the traditional rivals, the Narragansett, had suffered less, and Massasoit needed help to keep them at bay. Plus, more subtly, the Narragansett would be reluctant to attack an English colony or its allies 
while elsewhere they were trading with the English. So again, the politics of the indigenous peoples and their search for advantage at a time of cataclysmic human tragedy with the plague may have led to the survival of the first colony in New England. Massasoit would make a pact with the English, which would last 50 years. Like Powhatan, Massasoit could not have been aware that thousands more English would follow continuously and that over time the balance of power would shift, develop and eventually lead to conflict. And indeed, Plymouth would remain a small and politically insignificant colony in what follows. And to discuss what happens, I need first to take you to a leaky, creaky and probably quite smelly ship, the Arbella, to a cabin where a man is writing, lantern swinging above him with the movement of the ship. Probably there are the sounder seamen outside working the vessel. It is probable the odd rude word might have been used, but if so, John Winthrop, for it is he, would have come down on them like a ton of the proverbials. John was a solid, honest-to-goodness Calvinist of godly persuasion, a lawyer from the land of Suffolk, where the glorious, stately mountains reach in places to 400 feet high. He came from a wealthy family of landowners and merchants, and he had long wished to establish a new world. He'd considered Ireland, but in 1629 another opportunity came along in the form of the Massachusetts Bay Company, formed by a group of investors. By 1630, John and his fellow travellers had set out from the Isle of Wight for said Massachusetts Bay. If we look over John's shoulder, we might see that he is writing, writing something called a model of Christian charity. And he's just written a sentence of which he might well have felt just a little bit smug, since it would become very famous. We shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. We shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. There has been much debate about John's motive and those of his fellow settlers. Some have argued that there were economic motives instead of religious. The debate seems to have arrived at the synthesis approach that economic and religious motives were often inseparable and present in most in varying proportions. Many of the colonists, for example, were spinners and weavers who had been hit very hard by the depression of trade in the 1630s that had flowed from the chaos of the Thirty Years' War. Now, unless you want to be here all day, I'm going to have to start summarising in a big way. So John and his companions would establish a town called Boston after the Lincolnshire town from which some had come. Over the next decade or so, a number of other colonies would be established for varying reasons, some due to the influx of new colonists. Something like 14,000 people came from England to New England between 1629 and 1642. Sometimes it had to do with religious dis disagreements. The godly may have gone to escape religious persecution, and honestly that's quite a strong way of putting what Charles and Lord were doing. It's maybe more accurate to say that the godly wished to form a form of religion they thought the Church of England ought to be adopting as well. But whatever, they didn't leave to establish toleration or liberty of conscience. Uniformity remained the order of the day generally, and religious disagreements led to some key figures leaving the band to pursue a solo career. Not very much like George and Michael leaving Wham, to be honest, but if the cap fits. So, for example, the departure of John Wheelwright and Roger Williams led to the establishment of two colonies in particular, and New Hampshire and Rhode Island respectively. These arose against the backdrop 
of a religious dispute with one Anne Hutchinson, and it's an event which really demonstrates, amongst pretty much everything else, to be honest, just how central religion was to these people's lives. Anne Hutchinson famously attracted attention for her views on predestination in a form known as antimonianism, the idea that God had decided from the end of time who would be saved and who would not. And there was absolutely nothing anyone could do to change that, not a sausage. Which rather implied that having ministers providing spiritual guidance was a bit irrelevant. What were they for? The debate was fierce and Anne had influential backers, John Cotton, and one Harry Vane Jr., who was governor for a couple of years and who would return to England and have a part to play in the civil wars back home. In 1637, John Winthrop, governor once more, convened the general court. John Wheelwright and Anne Hutchinson were condemned and banished. Roger Williams had been banished in 1636 because of artistic, I mean because of religious differences, and his solo career took him to Rhode Island, where in fact he did set up a colony which had religious toleration at its heart. This was not the norm, though. When Quakers arrived after 1656, they were harshly dealt with and four of them executed. So, without going through all the colonies and their formation, the news basically is that after a traditionally rocky start, the New England colonies thrived, bred out and population grew, despite receiving many fewer migrants than did the Caribbean or Virginia. Interesting, I hear you murmur. Why would that be? Let me have a shot at explaining it. You might hold in one part of your powerful mind a few of the features of emigrants into Virginia. The vast majority were poor, with little to lose, arriving as indentured servants, mostly male, in a proportion of four blokes to one woman, and usually single. OK? Well, the profile of those arriving in New England was not like that. Not like that at all. New England colonies were very choosy. They might demand proof of good character before accepting somebody. If you didn't fit at a particular place, you'd be removed to another colony or sent packing home. Plus, new arrivals travelled in families more than any other major ethnic group of North American history, apparently, so I'm told. In some cases, ships arrived with over 90% of the people on board in family groups, and often those families knew each other back home and there were relatively few servants. This preponderance of family meant the male-to-female ratio was much closer, 150 males for every 100 women. People married relatively young, 23 for women, 26 for men, and altogether this made for a high fertility rate. So, when the tap of emigration was turned off abruptly, when the civil war started back in Blighty, it meant that population continued to grow from organic growth while Virginia and the Caribbean remained very dependent on a flow of immigration. They also arrived from a largely different part of the world. This is David Hackett Fisher's thesis, that the immigrants to New England were dominated by people from the east of England, and they brought their folkways, their habits and customs, along with them. It is worth noting that East Anglia in particular had always been in the forefront of English Protestantism, so Calvinism and Puritanism were part of that. It does mean that Hackett Fisher makes the point compellingly that East Anglian culture formed a powerful underpinning of the new, specifically New England culture that emerges. Though might I digress to remark that a minor consequence is that his book chapters are all organised by the word ways, 
to tie in with his folkways theme, to the point, sometimes, occasionally, of absurdity. Gender ways, building ways, marriage ways, sex ways, naming ways, anything except alleyways, essentially. Although the naming ways section is particularly good, I have to tell you. You have a plethora of names driven by the Bible, unsurprisingly, I suppose. So, Mary, Elizabeth, Sarah, Rebecca, Ruth, with the occasional foray into absurdities such as the son of one Samuel Pond, who was baptised as Meanie Meanie Upsarin Pond. Now look, I am a trivial person, and my favourite paragraph in this entire influential and seminal work was the example from Sussex, particularly noted for these kind of names, apparently, and one young woman who was baptised Fly Fornication Ball, would you believe? who had a dalliance in the shop of a yeoman called Goodman Woodman. The world of history has so many pearls to cast before swine like me. Anyway, I do not have time to describe in detail the customs of the people of New England, but let me note that their social origin was also very different to Virginia, which had that vast gap between rich plantation owners and penniless indentured servants and the enslaved. The people who came to New England were reasonably well off. Three quarters paid for their own passage, unlike indentured servants. They were generally of the middling sort, and therefore highly literate. This also was then reflected in the central importance of education in the colonies, including the very early establishment of the university at Harvard in 1636. It's not that the society formed was devoid of rank, In land allocations, there was allowance made for rank. The gentlemen and gentry of England received a little more land. But comparative to England, and indeed to Virginia, the social hierarchy was very flat. And, returning to that discussion about greed driving colonisation, if I can recall that comment I made at the start of this series of four, the people who came do not appear to have come to make their fortune, albeit they came for a better life, and were often encouraged by bad economic times back home. Generally, they didn't aim for big estates and vast fortunes. No one was searching for gold. There was none of Warwick's desire to raid Spanish shipping and advance the Protestant cause. People aimed for what they called a competency, a patch of land sufficient to maintain their family and perhaps to produce a little surplus along the way. Despite these limited ambitions, population growth inevitably led to pressure on the available land, which had terrible consequences for relationships with the indigenous people. By 1650, the colonist population numbered 23,040 towns. On the face of it, the story of relationships with the indigenous peoples appears much less adversarial and predatory than in Virginia, but there's no getting around it. It is still a tough story, sometimes based on misunderstandings and different values, but sometimes on straightforward exploitation. Probably the worst example of this is the Pequot Massacre. For some time, the English colonies had formed a useful partnership with several of the tribes, particularly with the Narragansett. A useful trade triangle developed because the Narragansett controlled the supply of wampum. Wampum were the purple and white shells of small whelks found along the Long Island Sound, and when strung into beads, they were valued by the indigenous peoples for ceremonial, official, communication and ornamental purposes. They began to develop as a de facto currency. 
The Narragansett created the beads, traded them to the English in return for metal goods, cloth and so on. The English, in turn, used them to trade for furs with the northern Indians to use or sell on. While this continued, it gave some equality to the relationship. The English could not afford to annoy the Narragansett since they controlled this valuable resource. But times changed. The heavy trading in furs and changing land use and the clearing of woodlands meant that gradually the indigenous peoples had few furs to trade and so the triangle collapsed. Increasingly, the only resource the Narragansett and other peoples possessed was their land. The attitude to land ownership from the English side was based on the res nullius idea of vacuum domicilium, as John Winthrop called it. To the English eyes, the land was empty or not used as God has intended, and so the colonists were free to take and inhabit it. Despite that, usually the colonists bought land from people like the Wampanoag and the Narragansett, which sounds great in, in a way, but these transactions were seen very differently from both sides often. For the indigenous peoples, there was no such thing as private property. Maybe their view was that these transactions were about building relationships and allowing access. Of course, the English view of property was much more binary. Although it will come outside the period I'm covering, the peaceful relationships between the English and the Wampanoag and the Narragansett would come to an end. As the English colonies grew, they increasingly saw the position of the indigenous as subordinate, even beginning to expect them to submit to the legal jurisdiction of the colonies. But it was land that formed the trigger. Indigenous peoples were increasingly squeezed. Woodland available to them for hunting was much reduced. Their lifestyles had to change to more solely sedentary away from the seasonal movements. They were forced to rely solely on agriculture. And yet the English colonists' farms kept encroaching. Pigs caused havoc on indigenous farms. And in the end, it would lead to war in the 1670s. But well before that, the Pequot Wars gave a dire warning of what was to come. The Pequot had been trading for some years with the English when the settlement of the Connecticut Valley brought them into direct contact and land ownership started to create tension. Two English traders were killed by the Pequot in 1634 and 6. The Massachusetts Bay Colony demanded they be tried under English law and the Pequot refused. At issue here then was the nature of the relationship as well as land. Were the Pequots subject now to English jurisdiction? Once more, there was division among the indigenous. The Pequot asked the Narragansett for alliance against the colony, but the Narragansett allied instead with the English. After the Pequot raided an English town in 1637, Massachusetts, together with help from the Narragansett and the Plymouth and Rhode Island colonies, put together a major army and marched on the Pequot at their village on the Mystic River. As it happens, most of the Pequot warriors were away. Only 500 women, children and older men remained. Nonetheless, the English surrounded the village, fired it and proceeded to slaughter every Pequot who tried to escape. The Narragansett protested furiously, horrified by this new type of warfare, but to no avail. There's more to add to the horror. When an even larger group of Pequot were tracked down, the Puritans killed their fighting men, rounded up the rest and sold them into slavery in the Caribbean. The Narragansett leader, Miantonomo, appealed to his fellow peoples in 1643 to form an alliance with the Moquakes and the Mohawks to drive out the English. You know our fathers had plenty of deer and skins. Our plains 
were full of deer, as also our woods and of turkeys and our coves full of fish and fowl. But these English, having got our land, they with scythes cut down the grass, and with axes fell the trees, the cows and horses eat the grass, and the hogs boil our clam banks, and we shall all be starved. But the attempt failed. The English captured me Antonimo, tried him, and had him executed by one of his rivals, the Mohegan leader, Uncas. The relationship to an English and Indian was now effectively one not of equals, but of ruler and subject. I suppose there are just a couple of other things I must mention, time allowing. One is just to emphasise again the importance of religion in governing all aspects of daily life. There, I've said it, but you knew it already. Just as English Protestants did not feel themselves cut off from Europe, but part of a European-wide communion of Protestant churches, so the New England Puritans still felt part of a community of their English fellows and communicated with them regularly. John Cotton, for example, a leading minister in New England, regularly corresponded with Oliver Cromwell. The strength of religious feeling led to some interesting consequences. People would sit through lengthy two-hour sermons every week. It's been estimated 7,000 sermons on average in a lifetime. And yet, church membership fell, which seems counterintuitive, because the good people took evidence that they were saved very seriously and they were required to demonstrate they'd been called before gaining full church membership. The strength of religion has led some to describe the society as theocratic, but most reject this because ministers were not necessarily qualified as civil magistrates. But religion was not a separate thing in people's lives. It governed attitudes to everything. It also led to a very strong civic society. Each town had an assembly and regular meetings. The governor was elected by male suffrage, but church membership was required to have the vote. In Massachusetts, the colony charter effectively became the constitution with a general court with legislative powers. As other colonies were established, they often created their own codes, such as the fundamental orders established by Connecticut in 1639. Many of the principles of all English colonies therefore held true. To survive, the American colonies needed local autonomy, and such they had, and such they held. Finally, there's something of the economic situation we might mention. The land in New England was very varied, and there was no quick win with an enormously valuable cash crop like tobacco in Virginia or sugar in the Caribbean. Farms and land holdings tended to be relatively small, and as we've heard, most colonists aimed at little more than subsistence anyway. All of this probably helped create this very strong, successful civil society in New England, which, while wildly religious in character, feels much more functional and successful than the Caribbean or Virginian colonies. But in pure economic terms, New England was not rich. It had little to sell that the home country wanted, but it did have a diversified economy, much better insulated against the winds of market changes, such as the plummeting price for tobacco in the 1680s, for example. And then little by little, New England began to find an external market for its output, and the change is crucially important to the Atlantic economy generally and to the continuation of enslavement in the Caribbean. As early as 1645, New England dominated the North Atlantic cod fishery and had a healthy shipbuilding capability. And from mid-century, it also found a market for its agricultural food output in the Caribbean. On the slave islands, all production was given to sugar and tobacco, and so it fell to New England 
to feed the enslaved. The Atlantic economy, therefore, relied on European, like Spanish and Dutch carriers, bringing the enslaved from Africa, and increasingly led by the English too from the 1660s, foodstuffs then coming from New England, and tobacco and sugar sold into England. By 1676, English merchants complained that New England had supplanted the mother country as the great mart and staple of the Atlantic world. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So there we go. That's New England, an embarrassingly minuscule brief for you. And yet again, grovelling apologies for the multiple omissions. I have just a few minutes to give a very broad overview of what else was happening in terms of European colonisation. So let's go north to south. The situation in what would become Canada was dominated by the politics of the indigenous nations. The Montagnier and the Huron face a lot of pressure from the Iroquois people. You might remember we talked about the Iroquois Five Nations and how that brought peace within the Five Nations and the opposite to those outside the League. The Hurons therefore welcomed alliances with the French traders led by Samuel Champlain and they expected both trade and military help from him, which Champlain duly delivered by working in an assault with the Hurons against the Mohawks in 1609. This leads me, by the way, to mention my trip very briefly to Vermont, invited there by Larry of this parish, and the most fantastic site I think I've ever seen in my life at the top of Snake Mountain, overlooking Lake Champlain. Absolutely stunning. I recommend it to anybody. Anyway, as New France was extending along the St. Lawrence, they made more effort than most to convert indigenous peoples to Christianity, and the Jesuits had a lot of success from the late 1640s, though it seems to also be the suggestion that partly the response was driven by increasing disease and military pressure on them from the Iroquois, or on the Huron, that is to say. New France continued to emphasise trade, but settlements along the St. Lawrence or did also grow. One approach to encouraging settlement was for the French to allocate large parcels of land perpendicular to the St. Lawrence. This approach meant that New France developed a sizeable nobility, since these large landowners then took on permanent tenants to work the land for them. Migration was never big, though. By 1666, there were just over 3,000 European settlers in New France. Of English presence, there was little, though attempts had been tried in Newfoundland. But as you will remember, the Treaty of Sousa with France had required England hand back her possessions. England and Canada will have their time. Just south of New England, we have the New Netherlands from about 1613 and the Dutch West India Company. It seems that initially the Dutch took a conscious decision to focus on trading, not settlement, focusing on the fur trade, particularly beaver furs. For the Mohawk people, the Dutch offered a great opportunity, for at their backs were the Hurons, who held the trading relationship with the French. 
So the Mohawk took action to make sure they owned the Dutch trading relationship, driving the rival Mohican people from the area to achieve it. Disease and competition led to increasing violence between the Mohawk and their Iroquois allies and the Huron people. By 1648 and 9, the largely ritualised warfare had become constant and much more vicious in a series of conflicts called the Beaver Wars. By the late 1630s, though, settlement along the lower Hudson Valley in Manhattan was increasing and creating the same kind of tensions as in the English colonies elsewhere. So consequently, in 1643, the Dutch carried out an atrocity very similar to the fate visited on the Pequots. The village of Pavonia was surrounded and 130 indigenous people killed. By this time, and with the arrival of the governor, Peter Stuyvesant, in 1646, a man who I believe, if I remember rightly from my youth, has a cigarette named after him, and there can be no greater fame than that, surely. By that time, New Amsterdam had become a multicultural settlement of some variety. Germans from Westphalia, French Huguenot, English Puritans, Belgian and Scandinavians in addition to the Dutch. The growing success of the colony was driven partially by its religious toleration, but also at this time by a growing Dutch dominance in the slave trade from Africa. Around 10% of the people coming to the colony at this time were enslaved, although about one-fifth of the black Africans in the colony were free. By 1655, Stuyvesant had dealt with a nascent colony on the Delaware Valley called New Sweden, dealt with it by telling them collectively to sling their hook, which they either did or swore loyalty to the Dutch. But the same approach would clearly not work with New England. There were just too many of them. So in 1650, Stuyvesant met with the representatives of a New England confederacy and they agreed a border, dividing Long Island between them. By 1660, the Dutch colony numbered about 7,000 souls in all. Almost there then, everyone. I should mention, finally, finally, Lord Baltimore and Maryland. I would like to formally apologise to Andy on Facebook, who tells me this is the apex of English history, and to which I can but devote but, say, three minutes, which doesn't seem enough for an apex. This is the problem with a callow Englishman doing history on North America. I knew there'd be trouble. Also, I hope I've got the pronunciation for Maryland correct. Luke told me to make sure I pronounced every syllable clearly in order to win friends and influence people. So just to be contrary, I'm going to mangle it on purpose and call it Maryland. Anyway, George Calvert, Baron Baltimore, had been keen to establish a Catholic colony. He tried also in Newfoundland, but crashed and froze. As he tried to get a charter further south, the Virginians, being good Protestants all, were not so keen and tried hard to stop the lad, but soon after his death in 1632, land in the Upper Chesapeake was granted by charter from Charles I. This is an interesting document, a sort of feudal grant of land from Charles which gave Baltimore full and absolute powers in the territory to create his own little feudal nobility with associated servants. First Lord Proprietary, Earl Palatine of the provinces of Maryland and Avalon in America. Accordingly, the immigration model would follow Virginia, not New England. The male-to-female ratio, for example, would become six to one, even more extreme than Virginia, and the economy was built around tobacco and the labour of the enslaved to boot, though the number of enslaved by 1660 was only 100, and their status at this stage 
would have been quite fluid. Despite later attempts to attract servants, life remained pretty tough for all, and it meant that 40% of servants did not survive their indentures. Pretty quickly, however, the gobby colonists insisted on a colonial assembly with the right to legislate, to which Baltimore, son of Baltimore, was wise enough to agree. Sadly, the colony, only 500 strong by 1640, was plagued by infighting, since the majority of colonists were Protestant as opposed to the Catholic intention. However, Baltimore, son of Baltimore, would be governor of the colony for over 40 years, from its first settlement in 1634, and he was reasonable enough to realise that the colony was not going to fly, unless there was religious toleration. Therefore, with angels and archangels, Maryland has the honour of being the first place in the colonies to have a Catholic mass performed there. I assume the wording of that is careful enough to exclude Jesuit missionaries in what becomes Canada, but let me not get arsy. But it also has the honour of being the first colony pass an act of toleration in 1649, allowing the pursuit of any Trinitarian religion, though also extending death to atheists. Baltimore played the game cleverly during the civil wars, trying to walk the line, professing loyalty to the Republic, although personally a royalist, and he managed to keep his position of governor. Nonetheless, a Calvinist revolt took place in 1655. They won a bust-up at the Battle of the Seven, and they seized control of the colony, banning both Anglican and Catholic practice. Interestingly, it seems to be Cromwell in 1657 who contributed to the establishment of peace, I realise this will be upsetting to many of you. So let me quote Richard Middleton and Anne Lombard to you and you can follow up the reference in the website post page because I didn't have time to dig into it. Tempus, as ever, fugit. Oliver Cromwell now ruled England as Lord Protector and he had little sympathy for the demands of the Maryland Puritans. In consequence, the two parties were forced to compromise. There we go, I commend it unto you. In time, by 1660, the manorial model of large landowners and tenants Baltimore had aimed for had faded away. Servants almost invariably bought land after the end of their indentures, and in the 1650s there was something of a boom. By 1660 there was just one manor left. Well, good golly, Miss Molly. Flying coverage or what? Sorry again and all. Is there a summary, I wonder? But if there is, I suppose I'd repeat again my astonishment of just how different the colonies were from each other within the English, but even more so when including the Dutch and the French. There are similarities across the English, including the policy that emerged, the separation from indigenous peoples, with the exception of the very early days and the praying towns established in 1644 in New England. Apart from that, there was little attempt at conversion or integration. But also there was similarity in governance. None of these colonies were actively sponsored, financed and consequently governed by the Crown, unlike the French colonies, for example. Even where the Crown took things over, as in Virginia, the relationship was very much kept at arm's length. So the principle of local autonomy, local lawmaking and governance was established from the very start with high levels of local engagement. But certainly the idea we introduced at the start that there was going to be a single model of colonisation based on Roman precedence and Irish plantation experience had turned out to be very wide of the mark. Now that's it then for the moment. Do take care to go to the website to see maps. My geography of North America is very much better now than it was at the start when I thought Virginia was just above New Orleans and absolutely no idea where the Chesapeake might be. 
One final time, I apologize for multiple errors, rotten pronunciations and omissions. As a general, rather useless comment, I just hope to have done some justice to all. Colonisation can, of course, be an immensely binary topic for obvious reasons, but it is incredibly complex and the motivations similarly so. None of those taking part had any real clear idea of where it would lead and the price to be paid. On one hand, it's impossible to tell the story without feeling the horrendous price to be paid by the indigenous people or the enslaved. Or on the other hand, to ignore the hopes, fears, optimism and just blind courage of those who took such an enormous risk and leap of faith to travel across the Atlantic to a strange land and start a new life. I guess the historian A. E. Smith captures some of that when he wrote that the colonial world was a haven for the godly, a refuge for the oppressed, a challenge to the adventurous and the last resort of the scoundrel. Anywho, that's it for now. Next time it's back to Blighty, Charles and the gathering clouds, no bigger than a man's hand. Thank you for listening as ever. Thank you in advance to the Americans and Canadians among you for forbearance at so many crimes against your history. Thank you all for your comments and reviews. Good luck to all of you and have a great couple of weeks before we meet again. Thank you.